Hey there, this is Lieutenant Stockwell. If you're enjoying this audio fiction adventure of that bonehead, August Reardon, why not support the author and pre-order a copy of his latest Reardon book, Geisha Confidential? Follow the link in the episode description. Geisha Confidential by Mark Coggins. Stockwell says buy it. The Immortal Game is a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year and is available in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 14. Teller Leaves the Board. Are you dead or what? I pried open my eyes and squinted up in the direction of the querulous voice. I was lying on my back in the middle of Terry McCullough's living room. The obese landlady from downstairs standing to one side, prodding my temple with her foot. She was wearing a loud green bathrobe that made me think somebody's shower curtain was missing. A wave of nausea rolled over me. Get lost, Broomhilda, I growled. You're making me sick. You've done plenty to make your own self sick, I imagine. She kicked a little harder at my temple. I was leaving anyway. I've got to go down and open the front door for the cops. I watched her trundle out of the room and then rolled over on my side and levered myself up on all fours. My head throbbed like an oriental gong, and my stomach did the dipsy-doodle as I turned. I felt like a past kidney stone. With the supreme application of willpower, I sat back on my haunches and surveyed the room from an upright position. If I wasn't completely sure why she had done so before, I now gained a full insight into the landlady's decision to call the police. Roland Teller's dead body lay smeared across the carpet, not three feet away. One arm was wrapped around his chest. The other, bent at the elbow, lay above his head. His legs were tangled in the cloth of his raincoat a garment he hadn't been wearing when I surprised him. His face was a death mask done in white paraffin, the dull, half-open eyes like slits torn in a pillowcase. The obvious cause of death was a pair of neat bullet holes that pierced his thick, muscled neck just above the collar. The cauteroid artery had been cut, spilling rivers of blood onto his shirt and suit as he died. Dark red blood. Not the shiny pink stuff Hollywood stuntmen make from food dye and corn syrup, but the real stuff that flows out of wounds and clots and gets black and ugly and turns your stomach to look at. That kind of blood. I didn't have the time or inclination to make a thorough search of his clothing, but I forced myself to pat down the pockets of his raincoat and suit jacket. I found a cellular phone, car keys, a roll of mints, a pocket comb, and oddly, a sealed business envelope with what looked like a ticket or coupon inside. 
I didn't know whether it was a ducat to this Sunday's 49ers game or 25 cents off my next package of dental floss, but I folded the envelope over and shoved it into my hip pocket. Two uniformed bruisers on patrol car duty were the first to arrive. They swept into the apartment with revolvers drawn, arms extended, and knees slightly bent, barking, Freeze! Police! at the top of their lungs. I was waiting for them in the middle of the room, with my hands already laced behind my head. This is as cold as I get, I said cheerfully. They showed me how much they liked that by shoving my face into the wall and putting a gun to my ear. The younger one patted me down, finding my 9mm in its holster and the set of lockpicks I had used on the back door. Fortunately, he overlooked the envelope I'd taken off Teller. After cuffing my hands behind my back, they frog-marched me over to the dinette set and pushed me into a chair. I gave them the Reader's Digest condensed version of my story, keeping Bishop's name and the exact reason for my visit out of it. Now that I was safely under wraps, the patrol cops listened and spoke with polite reserve, but their faces said they believed the things I told them about as much as they believed I was the king of Prussia. I had been through the story only one and a half times when two detectives walked in with a landlady in tow. The one named Holtzman was short, red-faced, and chunky. He had wispy blonde hair and looked more like a donut cook than a police detective. Stockwell, his partner, was better typecast. He had a tall, wiry frame, gray-flecked brown hair, and a face set in stone. His chin in particular looked hard enough to split logs. After speaking for a time with the patrol cops, Holzman pulled the landlady into the kitchen for questioning, and Stockwell came over to give me the benefit of his sunny disposition. Stockwell wasn't a big fan of Reader's Digest, and evidently wanted something more along the lines of war and peace. Look, Reardon, he said flatly, I don't have the time for hand-holding cheapy private investigators who are squeamish about giving out their client's name. Unless you supply the name of the person you're working for and the real reason you came up here, I'll be more than happy to let you take the fall on this one. We cops are kind of old-fashioned in our ways. We find two guys in an apartment, one dead and the other carrying a gun under his arm. We just assume that the guy with the gun might have had something to do with the other guy being dead. It's crazy, but that's how it works. Come on, detective. You know my gun hasn't been fired. Besides, those holes in Teller's neck weren't made with a cannon like mine. That's the kind of damage you get with a twenty-two. So, you brought a pea shooter in your sock and tossed it out the window just after you plugged him. Then there's a little matter of my being found unconscious by the landlady. Easy enough to fake for a clever Joe like you. And one thing you aren't going to talk your way around is the lockpicks we nabbed you with. That's breaking and entering and unlawful possession of burglary tools. I can have your license pulled for less than that. I was beginning to see this was an argument I couldn't win. Okay, I give, I said. But do me the courtesy of keeping my client's name out of the papers. This is already enough to put me in real tight. I don't need to have him reading about himself tomorrow morning at breakfast. Stockwell shrugged. I'll see what we can do, but no promises. Now spill it. I told him how Bishop had hired me to recover his software, and how Terry McCullough and Teller were involved, and about the conversation I'd had with Teller in his office. I explained that I hadn't been able to locate McCullough, and that a lot of her friends were doing their best to make sure I never did. I left out a few details here and there, 
such as the fact I'd broken into Terry McCullough's apartment on my first visit and found a twenty-two caliber revolver and that I had a piece of potential evidence sitting in my back pocket. Stockwell was particularly interested in my conversation with Teller. He had me go over it several times and asked me repeatedly if I was sure that Teller had identified Terry McCullough as the individual he'd bought the chess game from. I assured him that Teller had picked McCullough, but emphasized that he had apparently thought he was dealing with Bishop's legitimate agent. When I finished telling the story for the third time, Stockwell rocked back in his chair to think. Then, you got any ideas on this? None that you haven't thought of. If Teller was duped into buying the chess game from Terry McCullough, then it figures he would go to see her about getting his money back once I tipped him to the play. He was probably waiting for her when I walked into the apartment. She arrived a minute later and bopped me over the head. Teller and she argued over the money, then Teller got too rough for her to handle. She shot him down and left him holding the bag. Yeah, the deck's stacked pretty heavy against her right now. I also like her for using the twenty-two caliber. That's a woman's gun. It might even be this woman's gun, I thought. Sometimes I didn't know when to keep my own mouth shut. I said, there's still a couple of things that don't quite figure, though. I'll bite, said Stockwell. Well, first of all, how did Teller get hold of the key to Terry McCullough's apartment? Stockwell dropped the front legs of his chair to the floor abruptly. He leaned his forearms onto the table. That's easy, Reardon. They were playing house together. She gave him a copy of the key a long time ago. You said yourself that the landlady was complaining about all the visitors she had. Okay, point to you. His being hooked up with Terry McCullough would also explain why he seemed so at home in the apartment, guzzling beer from the fridge and all. But the other thing isn't so easy to get around. I don't see her hitting me on the head from behind. One, she didn't have any real motive for it. And two, that's about the last thing in the world I would expect a woman to do in that kind of situation. Stockwell chuckled. You just don't like the idea of it being a woman who knocked you out. That's all. Besides... She had a great reason for sapping you. She knew you were onto her game, so she wanted to make sure you weren't around to question her or stop her from pumping two quick ones into her boyfriend. Holzman had come back from the kitchen and was trying to get Stockwell's attention, so I decided to give it a rest. Stockwell got up to compare notes with Holzman, and then the two detectives herded me and the landlady out of the apartment, down to a pair of waiting patrol cars. Several newspaper men converged on us as we came out of the building, but the detectives weren't talking for publication. A flash from one of the press cameras went off in my face just as I was being shoved, hands still cuffed behind my back, into the lead car. We were driven to the East Palo Alto police station where Stockwell put me through my paces for two more hours. After a lot of warnings and tough talk about losing my license, they released me. The landlady, it turned out, had been driven back to the apartment house an hour earlier but an unexpected shortage of cars prevented them from providing the same service to me. I called a cab. The driver was a chatty little bird who insisted on giving me his views on the rather arcane subject of women's fashion. After a great deal of study and close observation, he had developed what he called Hooper's Three Laws of Women's Wear. I can't remember what the first two were about, but the third sticks with me. All women's earrings that dangle from the earlobe look like fish lures. There seems to be something to that. I picked up my car and drove back to my apartment in San Francisco. It was about 3.30 in the morning when I arrived. 
I stripped off my clothes and collapsed into bed like a demolished building. I fell asleep instantly, but the person who leaned on my doorbell less than one half hour later did not want me to stay that way. I pried myself off the mattress, donned a bathrobe, and buzzed open the outside door. When a knock sounded on the apartment door, I yanked it open, expecting to find Stockwell smirking like a hyena, having remembered just one more question he wanted to ask. You have been listening to The Immortal Game, a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year. Find it in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Mark